0: Welcome to the Liverpoolitan Conversations podcast where we talk to somebody interesting about all matters Liverpool. This time I'm talking to journalist and author Brian Groom about Northerners, who are they, what makes them tick and what's particular about the Liverpool variety. Brian Groom is a journalist who spent most of his career at the Financial Times, where he specialised in regional affairs and politics. He was also the editor of Scotland on Sunday, but as if that's not enough, he's now an author of a new book called Northerners, a history from the ice age to the present day. It's billed as being the definitive history of the north as told through the lives of its inhabitants. The scope of the book is enormous, spanning waves of migration from the Romans to the Windrush generation. Countless battles, witchcraft trials, the rise of empire and cotton, trouble at Mill, the success of the Bronte sisters and much more. There's a dash of Victorian optimism, the growth of musicals and the hard days of deindustrialisation that followed in the 20th century. It even covers the transformation of Blackpool from a sea-bathing spot for the wealthy to the raucous working-class pleasure dome it became. There really is a bit of something for everyone, Brian. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi. Such a curious title for a book. I think that was the first thing that sort of got got me interested. It seemed so bold and ambitious to to take on the entire history of the North. What what made you want to do it?
1: Well, I mean, it's uh, I've spent most of my working life one way or another covering and thinking about um, British and regional affairs issues. So that the history of the North came as a kind of natural topic for me. I'd been a history mad teenager uh, back in the day and um, so I first thought of the idea about 10 years ago and I was amazed to discover that nobody had published a general history of the north for more than 30 years in fact there would only ever been one published before so I thought it was uh, just um, just a, a great story that was crying out to be to be told and um It it ended up with a stronger narrative, I think, than than I'd expected. I intended to put, and I have put, lots of social and cultural themes into the book. But the story
0: itself actually turned out to be pretty gripping. I'm I'm imagining, I mean, this goes all the way from sort of prehistory right through to the modern day. So the sheer amount of research required to pull this together must have been enormous.
1: Yeah, it was quite a lot. I kind of worked slowly on it for a while, and then I suddenly started speeding up about three years ago. And then the lockdowns came and that helped me massively. Um, It gave me a lot more free time to get on with the reading. But, you know, I approached it very much as a journalist. It covers lots of topics, but I don't have to be the world expert in any of the the, the periods I cover. I just have to know enough to understand what was going on and what the main debates are and uh, not to get things wrong. And
0: which brand of northerner are you?
1: I've been asked this question um, and I, I try not to define Northerners precisely. Um, so I, I think I described. One person asked me I describe myself as a pan Northerner. Uh, I mean, I'm from Manchester, so I'm a Mancunian and a Lancastrian. Um, but also, when I was a kid, my father was a was um, sales manager of a small textiles wholesaler, and at half terms, he would take me on his sales trips all the way across the north, across Yorkshire and Lancashire and the North Midlands. So I. Uh, from early on, I got a sense of the, the the North as a whole, and that stuck with me, really.
0: It's quite interesting. Obviously, uh, I mean, w- we're Liverpoolitan, so uh, we have a particular focus on the uh, Liverpool city region. One thing that was interesting that struck me reading the book was how Liverpool and sort of that Lancashire, really, as was for, for much of the historical period that you cover in the book, is sort of non-existent. It's it's not a player in the great affairs
1: Yes, no, no, it's um, up to the Industrial Revolution. Lancashire as a whole was, was either Britain's poorest or next to poorest county and was sparsely populated. A lot of it was uncultivated um, um, heathland and moss, and the, it was cut off. The other side of the Pennines was much wealthier. Yorkshire, East Yorkshire in particular, had good farmland and was well connected into the North Sea trading community. And it had the Great North Road which took, uh, went from London up to Carlisle, Island, Scotland, and we, which bypassed Lancashire completely. So it, it, for, for Liverpool, I mean slightly different for Liverpool, it being a port, um, but it was pretty quiet place until the Industrial Revolution really. Um, and the Industrial Revolution just changed everything for the
0: Northwest. Actually one of the great issues that Liverpool has been sort of addressing over recent years is its historical legacy as a, a slave port how central was slavery first to the rise of liverpool but also more generally to the growth of the north and the industrial revolution itself
1: um well obviously very important liverpool itself and pretty important for the north i think it created assets that are still built into our community today uh and the whole of britain in the form of property and shares and things like that there is a lot of debate about exactly how Uh, about whether the Industrial Revolution could have happened without the slave trade uh, and what it might have been like without it. Most Most of the calculations for the extent to which the profits of the slave trade contributed to financing the Industrial Revolution are relatively modest. Uh, I think one recent study showed that slavery itself contributed about 8% to GDP by 1800, and the whole value of the slave industries is about 11% or something like that, which is a a significant, though probably not um, completely determining factor in the Industrial Revolution.
0: So many different bits to pick out in this. One of the things that struck me is you travel around northern cities uh, whether you're talking about the, the very largest ones or you, you go to the slightly smaller ones, the sort of Boltons of the world, the architectural legacy, uh, particularly from Victorian times, is incredible. And you talk about in the book, you talk about how there was a, a battle almost between the sort of the market loving liberals and the Tories who were uh, slightly more romantically looking back to previous times medieval times and there was a sort of battle over the type of architecture uh, that came about in in the great public buildings
1: yes very very broadly the um, the, the, the conservatives ten- had a tendency to like classical architecture and and liberals had a bit of a tendency to to like um, florentian architecture. It was once um when the cities well after their initial spurt of growth when the manufacturers and the merchants in the north cities were trying to demonstrate they were not just money-making philistines they started to build these great buildings and um, it was quite a riot of styles in many places and places differed in liverpool classicism lasted longer than in other cities and uh, particularly you've got the great neo-grecian saint george's hall plus all that cluster of um, neoclassical buildings around it, the Walker Gallery, etc. So Liverpool, of course, had already uh, had a bit more accumulated wealth than the other cities around that time, because it had been a big seaport and was an insurance capital, and things like that. But it, um, it certainly generated some fantastic buildings
0: why was it so important for these merchants to not be seen as philistines it, it, it sort of evokes a conversation that we've been having recently about why modern architecture particularly in uh, our own city doesn't seem to meet the standards of the past uh, and there's sort of been a discussion about whether previous generations had more of a civic mindset or whether it's more to do with economics uh, the changes in you know in in the nature of the building trade. And I, I thought it was interesting you talk about these people who, who I guess at some level wanted to be accepted in society beyond just being wealthy for commercial reasons.
1: I think that's probably true, and there's an element of showing off about it, an element of wanting to create things for posterity. One interesting thing about the the Victorian age was that the um, the railways were were pretty expensive to build, and a lot of in a lot of places they deliberately went for very grand stations that cost a lot of money to build at the expense of profits. So um, it was, it was a, it's a it's pretty widespread spread feature. I mean, I, one person I mentioned in the book is Alfred Waterhouse from Liverpool, was a uh, Liverpool-born Quaker, was the, probably the star architect of the Victorian age. He create, well, created Manchester's Town Hall and some other buildings in the city and other buildings like the, um, the Natural History Museum in London.
0: So interesting. You talk a, bit, a little bit about the economics of the North in terms of how it's, uh, you know, how it's how much it contributes to the GDP of the nation as a whole has fluctuated over the centuries. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about that and and how its fortunes have changed?
1: Yes, I mean, the I I think that the North um, started life in prehistory with certain geographical and geological handicaps. Um, Historians suddenly talk sometimes talk about uh, England having a Jurassic divide. There's a, a ridge of Jurassic limestone that stretches from Dorset up to the Yorkshire coast. And northwest of that, you tend to get what's sometimes called a highland zone, um, very hard rocks suitable for a pastoral economy for raising sheep and other livestock. And historically, it, it only created um, single farms or small hamlets, whereas southeast of that, you tended to get richer farmland. Uh, you saw villages created quite early on. Um, on the whole, richer, you saw things like pottery developed there before other parts of England. So that, and, and, and the weather as well, contributes to that. So they, it, it's more simple than a ge- geographical divide, but it was a bit of a handicap for the North Rights in the beginning. Uh, and throughout history but there have been times when it's um kind of defied that fate 12th and 13th centuries there was very rapid growth in the north and population was growing at twice the uh, the national rate um especially east of the pennines and you saw the growth of the woolen industry and then of course the industrial revolution where all those geographical factors that had handicapped the north previously Suddenly became to its advantage. Gaia, great sources of minerals and coal, uh, lots of rivers, very useful, and a damp atmosphere, very useful for spinning and weaving fine cotton and wool. And suddenly um, everything that had been against it was in favour of it. Um, But obviously, since then, it had a very difficult 20th century and it's at a bit of a crossroads now.
0: Are you optimistic about its future?
1: Uh, cautiously. I'm all, I, I mean, I, if you'd ask me the beginning of the 1980s, I'd probably have been quite pessimistic, but the big cities in particular have managed a degree of recovery. Uh, the question is, can that be extended to other places, the former mill towns, coalfields, um, seaports, um, seaside towns, that's going to be a bit harder, but I think, uh, some of the uh, and it may take different policies as well, uh, but some of the, the some of the things that that help to revive the cities, mainly a degree, high degree of partnership between local politicians, business leaders, and central government. I think some combination of that is always what you need to achieve successful regeneration.
0: Okay, um, Liverpool and Manchester are obviously great rivals it's it's sometimes it's hard to get a grip on on the true nature of that rivalry um, obviously when you talk about football it seems quite toxic at times although interestingly enough when you're uh, when you're talking about even something like liverpool versus manchester city it feels far different to liverpool versus manchester united but at the, at the level of organisations and business, there seems to be quite good relations between the cities and obviously our city region mayors currently are, are best of friends. How would you characterise that relationship between the two cities?
1: Yes, well, um, I'm a Mancunian and my wife is from Kirby, so I always have to be nice about <laughs> Liverpool. I think most of the uh, most of the North's rivalries, and there are lots of them, of uh, which Manchester Liverpool is among the most entertaining, uh, they're largely jovial, um, and they exist at banter level. As you say, the Liverpool Man United one has got certainly the last 30, 40 years has, has got a bit more serious than that at times. And the relationship has eb- ebbed and flowed from The early 19th century when famously um, uh, uh, Liverpool gentlemen looked down on Manchester men because they were in white collar businesses like insurance and banking. And uh, Manchester at the time was um, was a a newly industrialising town. But it's ebbed and flowed over the years. Manchester turned into a a, a commercial centre rather than a manufacturing centre. So in some ways, quite similar to Liverpool. There was the great battle over uh, over um, the port when the, the merchants of Manchester built the Manchester Ship Canal to avoid the high charges being charged in Liverpool. And today, I think it's I, I think it's it's better than it's been in the past, as you say, Manchester's Mayor Andy Burnham was born in Liverpool, and there's pretty good relationships between the cities. Manchester supported Liverpool when it was um, bidding to become European capital of Culture. Um, I would say, uh, I mean, there was a difficult period in the 1980s, but I think overall, I think it's not that bad at the moment.
0: It's interesting. Um, have you heard of the phrase Scouse exceptionalism?
1: Uh, yes, definitely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this sort of idea we're a bit different. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I guess if you're going to dig into the psychology of it a little bit better. I, I mean, I guess there must be some element of that, right? Uh, I,
1: I guess there is, yes, yes. I mean, one, one thing I talk about in the book is that the um, people have layers of identity, and often the people's first, first sense of identity is to their city or town or county or subregion. And across the north, you would say that um, Tyneside, Merseyside and Yorkshire have particularly strong senses of exceptionalism, and uh, there's the whole Scouse not English phenomenon, um, which I guess is tied into um, it being uh, a seaport and a global city. Uh, when Lewis when asked, um, where, what is England's second city, you would always say London. And uh, it's a rich and diverse region, and people have these different senses of themselves and their region. I'm sure there. I don't want to to speak for Liverpoolians, but I'm sure that uh, there are some that don't feel tied into England or the North at all, and some that do find them you know, consider themselves Northerners.
0: No, absolutely. The reason I raise it is because I think there's a certainly a consciousness within Liverpolitan magazine that the balance of power seems to significantly shift towards Manchester in in recent years, in the last few decades seems to be a city that has far more political influence than Liverpool uh, and has had far more success in leveraging uh, support from central government in inward investment. Most probably it's politics is a little more pragmatic than uh, Liverpool's sometimes sort of feisty uh, way of doing things. Um, And I suppose there are some creeping concerns really about what is the future for Liverpool? Uh, we sort of have this heritage of seeing ourselves as being this special place and this, you know, with this incredible architecture and history and economic and political importance in the past. And it feels increasingly like that's a history lesson rather than a reflection of today's reality. Um, so I don't know if you have any sense of that, whether, whether you feel that, you know, Manchester is being Uh, Christened the capital of the north, Burnham is often called the king of the north. Um, And how would you expect the rest of the north to respond to that trend?
1: Um, I'm sure that Burnham didn't volunteer to be uh, the king of the north. It was an internet meme. And uh, I don't think that, I mean, I I don't think Manchester has a pretension to be the capital of the north. It doesn't need a capital. It's not an administrative region. Um, So it's big cities have got to work together. I mean, I think Liverpool had a, obviously had a, both cities had a very difficult time in the early 1980s and Liverpool had it even worse than Manchester. So you got a, there was a, a gulf opened up there and Manchester tended to look down on Liverpool a bit during that period. And Manchester's turnaround began earlier than Liverpool's. I don't think it involved masses of government cash, to be honest. Um, there was some. And it did get the go-ahead for the first um, urban tram system, modern tram system, which involves some state money. Liverpool, of course, in the 80s was uh, divided in itself. It had, um, on the one hand, you had the debate in the, the, the government with um, Sir Geoffrey Howe wanting uh, to, to see managed decline, but Heseltine coming up and creating the development corporation and the Albert Dock and the, um, and the Garden Festival. Yet at the same time, you had a rejectionist, um, militant-led um, city council. They probably, so the city itself probably did lose some political influence at the central level over that period, but I think that's changing. Manchester's tended to have the initiative, because it, its economic turnaround happened a bit earlier, uh, but they are working closely together now. And I think the, the northern cities as a whole... Um, are working more closely than they have done in the past and that can only be a good thing
0: in the book you talk about um, the waves of uh, migration uh, into the north and it, it really does come across that from the romans and the vikings and the normans uh you know through to the chinese uh, south asians uh, it really has become very much a melting pot and yeah it's interesting because I, we're waiting for the current census data to come through but it's quite interesting that the sort of the, the sort of racial blending from town to town varies quite considerably, right? So, you know, Manchester has a much more prominent Asian population than, say, Liverpool does. Uh, Liverpool had sort of stronger mix of people from, you know, sort of West Indian background and um, obviously the Chinese immigrants. All so that seems to have maybe died off a little bit. I mean, but how do you feel the identity of what is to be uh, Northern has been shaped by these waves of, of migration?
1: Oh, immensely. I mean, we're all um, descended from um, one group of migrants or another. Um, it stabilises for a period and then you get another wave of migration of um, a different kind. So it's uh, it's left uh, this, this huge mark, particularly on Liverpool, obviously, because a lot of, particularly in the, um, the, the recent centuries, a lot of the migrants have come through the port, so it's been the first port of call for a lot of particularly uh for the irish deriving in the 19th century um, but the the north has seen lots of it manchester's had two big waves in the early 19th century but so the 1840s it was uh it was what um, what one historian described as the shock city of the industrial revolution people from all over the world were flooding into um um to see and to try and participate in the creation of an industrial cities so you've got migrants from right across Europe Um, and then it's had the the modern wave now with not just people going to live but loads of foreign students coming to work there and I think Manchester has more languages spoken per head of population than anywhere in the UK now which is fairly extraordinary so it's in my lifetime it's changed changed fairly dramatically and it can be hard sometimes for people who are brought up in, in in a particular culture and and it changes fairly dramatically around them within the space of a few years but over time migrants get absorbed and accepted and, and they all contribute
0: to the, the tapestry that is the region you talk in the book about the difficulty that migrants have had in being accepted in the North. I was curious as to whether you felt that that was something that is particular to the North or is of a greater extent in the North than you experienced in other parts of the country. Um, I I haven't studied that closely. I would be surprised if it's significantly different from other
1: places. I think just where in places where you get... you get tensions where you have very rapid immigration, and which poses strain and suddenly changes a community, um, and that seems to be the case wherever it uh, wherever it occurs. So i will be often it's been difficult for the new migrants, the the Irish in particular, when they arrived in the nineteenth century. There was a real anti-Irish backlash. They were seen as as Brutish and um, happy to um, wallow in squalor, even even by Friedrich Engels, whose partner was a second-generation Irish mill worker.
0: There were some quote. I'm just trying to find them. There were some amazing quotes about the things that were said about the Irish, uh, absolutely appalling to the modern ear.
1: Yeah, including by reformers and um, you know, social reformers. It was uh, it was univ- pretty well universal, and it took a long time for the Irish to be accepted in any way.
0: So so you've been through this process. How how long have you been working on the book? Um, I started
1: working slowly on it about seven years ago and speeded up about two or three years ago. Okay.
0: So have you learned anything about Northerners that you didn't expect to discover? Has anything really surprised you? Probably the most surprising thing is I,
1: I hadn't appreciated the extent of the conservative working class voting history in Lancashire and of course, in Liverpool, which is quite different from what we saw in, we see in Yorkshire and in the North East. Predominantly, the rest of the North voted, once, once they got the right to vote, voted at first Liberal and later predominantly Labour. Um, but there was this working class Tory voting tradition in Lancashire. Reasons for it are, 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 are debated. It's probably partly to do with hostility to Irish Catholic immigration certainly the case in in liverpool which the tories dominated from 1841 right up to the 1960s um but it may also have had to do i think with, with um lancashire's long history of insularity and isolation that's interesting
0: and and so in liverpool there was a strong connection between tourism and protestant uh the Protestant movement right
1: i think so yes yes it, in that he was quite different from the pattern in other other cities you the the kind of um, liberal elite of um, manufacturers and merchants tend to dominate the politics certainly in the early part of the the 19th century in Liverpool it just happened for a few years in the 1830s and then the conservatives won power again uh, in 1841 and held it throughout for a very long period and it's a, a very much a, a kind of working class form of toryism it wasn't the sort of aristocratic uh church and king kind of toryism you see in other parts of england
0: so brian this is a terrific book so if somebody wants to read it and i thoroughly recommend they do where should they go
1: well you can get it from any old bookshops a lot of them already have it bookshops um and all the main booksellers websites it's very pretty widely available it's already the um the number one English history bestseller on Amazon. Fantastic.
0: And are you available for? Are you doing a, war, a speaking tour, or, or what can they count? Uh, you? Yes, yes.
1: I've got. Um, I think currently, uh, sixty-eight bookings to speak, stretching into next year, and I've done twenty of them so far.
0: Have you got any books for Liverpool?
1: I've just done a Zoom meeting for Liverpool and Southwest Lancashire Family History Society. Um, I'm currently waiting. Possible other possible bookings in liverpool
0: well i hope you do i would love to love to hear more thank you very much for coming on to liverpolitan I uh, wish you all the best with the book and uh, yeah have a great day and thank you very much
1: thank you i loved it thanks a lot